Book One, Chapter Two, Part Three of History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume One by Henry Charles Lea. Book One, Chapter Two The Jews and the Moors, Part Three. It is thus easy to understand how, in the progress of the reconquest, the Moors of the territory acquired were treated with even greater forbearance than the Christians had been when Spain was first overrun. When raids were made, or cities were captured by force, there was no hesitation in putting the inhabitants to the sword or in carrying them off into slavery. But when capitulations were made or provinces submitted, the people were allowed to remain, retaining their religion and property, and becoming known under the name of Mudejales. The enslaved Moor was his master's property, like his cattle, but entitled to some safeguards of life and limb. Even baptism did not manumit him unless the owner were a Jew or a Moor. That he was frequently a man of trained skill and education is seen in the provision that, if his master confided to him a shop or a ship, the former was bound to fulfill all contracts entered into by his slave. Thus the free Castilian, whose business was war, had his trade and commerce to a considerable extent, as well as his agriculture, carried on by slaves. The rest was mostly in the hands of the Jews and the free Moors, or Mudejares. Labor thus became the badge of races regarded as inferior. It was beneath the dignity of the free man, and when, as we shall see hereafter, the industrious population was expelled by bigotry, the prosperity of Spain collapsed. As for the Mudejares, the practice of allowing them to remain in the reconquered territories began early. Even in Galicia they were to be found, and in Leon documents of the 10th century contain many Moorish names among those who confirm or witness them. The Fuero of Leon, granted by Alfonso V in 1020, alludes to Moors holding slaves, and the Berber century contain many Moorish names among those who confirm or witness them. In the Berber population there is still represented by the Maragatos to the southwest of Astorga, a race perfectly distinct from the Spaniards, retaining much of their African costume and speaking Castilian imperfectly, although it is their only language. Fernando I, 1033-65, who rendered the kings of Toledo and Seville tributary, and who was besieging Valencia when he died, alternated in his policy towards the inhabitants of his extensive conquests. In the early part of his reign he allowed them to remain, then he adopted depopulation, and finally he returned to his earlier methods. Alfonso IV followed the more liberal system. When he occupied Toledo, in 1085, he granted a capitulation to the inhabitants which secured to them their property and religion, with self-government and the possession of their great mosque. When, during his absence, the Frenchman, Bernard, abbot of Sahagun, newly elected to the archbishopric, in concert with his queen, Constance of Burgundy, suddenly entered the mosque, consecrated it, and placed a bell on its highest minaret. Alfonso was greatly angered. He hastened to Toledo, threatened to burn both the queen and the archbishop, and only pardoned them at the intercession of the Moors, who dreaded possible reprisals after his death. His policy, in fact, was to render his rule more attractive to the Muslim population, than that of his tributaries, 
the petty reyes de taifas who were obligated to oppress their subjects in order to satisfy his exigencies he even styled himself emperador de los cultos his tolerant wisdom justified itself for after coming to the Amorvades, in spite of the disastrous defeat of Zalaka and Ucles, he was able to hold his own and even to extend his boundaries, for the native Moors preferred his dominion to that of the savage Berbers. His successors followed his example, but it was not regarded with favor by the church. During the centuries of mental tupor which preceded the dawn of modern civilization, there was little fanaticism. With the opening of the twelfth century, various causes awoke the dormant spirit. Crusading enthusiasm brought increased religious ardor, and the labors of the schoolmen commenced the reconstruction of theology, which was to render the church dominant over both worlds. The intellectual and spiritual movement brought forth heresies, which, by the commencement of the thirteenth century, aroused the church to the necessity of summoning all its resources to preserve its supremacy. All this made itself felt, not only in the Albigensian Crusades and the establishment of the Inquisition, but in increased intolerance to Jew and Saracen, in a more fiery antagonism to all who were not included in the pale of Christianity. How this worked was seen in 1212, when, after the brilliant victory of Las Navas de Tolosa, Alfonso IX advanced to Ubeda, where 70,000 men had collected, and they offered to become Mudejares and to pay him a million of doblas. These terms were acceptable, and he agreed to them. But the clerical chiefs of the crusade, the two archbishops Rodrigo of Toledo and Arnaud of Norbonne, objected and forced him to withdraw his assent. He offered the besieged to let them depart on the payment of the sum, but they were unable to collect so large an amount on the spot, and they were put to the sword, except those reserved as slaves. In the same spirit, Innocent the Fourth, in 1248, ordered Jaime I of Aragon to allow no Saracens to reside in his recently conquered Balearic Islands except as slaves. In spite of the opposition of the Church, the policy of the Mudejalato was continued until the work of the reconquest seemed on the point of completion under San Fernando III. The kings of Granada was his vassal, like any other Christian noble. He subdued the rest of the land, giving the local chiefs advantageous terms, and allowing them to assume the title of kings. The Spanish Moors were thus reduced to submission, and he was preparing to carry his arms into Africa at the time of his death, in 1252. That Moorish rule, more or less independent, continued in the peninsula for yet two centuries and a half, is attributable solely to the inveterate turbulence of the Castilian magnates, aided by the disorderly ambition of members of the royal family. During this interval, successive fragments were added to Christian territory, when internal convulsions allowed opportunities of conquest, and in these the system which had proved so advantageous was followed. Moor and Jew were citizens of the realm, regarded as a desirable class of the population, and entitled to the public peace and security for their property under the same sanctions as the Catholic. They are enumerated with Christians in charters granting special exemptions and privileges to cities, safeguards for fairs and for general trade. Numerous fueros, which have reached us, place all races on the same level, and a charter of Alfonso X, 
1272, to the city of Murcia, in its regulations as to the cleansing of irrigating canals, shows that even in petty details such as these there is no distinction recognized between Christian and Moor. The safeguards thrown around them are seen in the charter of 1101, granted to the Mozarabes of Toledo by Alfonso VI, permitting them the use of their ancestral fuero juzgo, but penalties under it are only to be one-fifth, as in the fuero of Castile, except in the cases of theft and the murder of Jews and Moors, and in the fuero of Cataalayud, granted by Alfonso el Bayator in 1131, the weregold for a Jew or Moor is 300 sueldos, the same as for a Christian. Yet the practice as to this was not strictly uniform, and the conquering race naturally sought to establish distinctions which should recognize its superiority. The Fuero of Madrid, in 1202, imposes various disabilities on the Moors. A law of Alfonso X, who throughout his reign showed himself favorable to the subject races, emphatically says that, if a Jew strikes a Christian, he is not to be punished according to the privileges of the Jews, but much more severely, as a Christian is better than a Jew. So, if a Christian slays a Jew, or a Moor, he is to be punished according to the fuero of the place, and if there is no provision for the case, then he is to suffer the death, or banishment, or other penalty, as the king may see fit. But the Moor who slays a Christian is to suffer more severely than a Christian who slays a Moor, or a Jew. In an age of class distinctions, there was an inevitable tendency, and it is credible to Spanish tolerance and humanity that its progress was so slow. In the violence of the time, there was doubtless much arbitrary oppression, but the Mudejares knew their rights and had no hesitation in asserting them, nor does there seem to have been a disposition to deny them. Thus, in 1387, those of Bustiella complained to Juan I that the royal tax collectors were endeavoring to collect from them the Moorish capitation tax, to which they were not subject, having, in lieu thereof from ancient times, paid to the lords of Biscay twelve hundred maravedes per annum, and being entitled to enjoy all the franchises and liberties of Biscay, whereupon the lord issued an order to the assessors to demand from them only the agreed sum and no other taxes, and to guarantee them all the franchises and liberties uses and customs of the lordship of Biscay. Even more suggestive is a celebrated case occurring as late as the reign of Henry IV. In 1455, the chaplains of La Capella de la Cruz de Toledo complained to the king that the tax on all meats slaughtered in the town had been assigned to the chapel for its maintenance, but that the Moors had established their own slaughterhouse and refused to pay the tax. Elsewhere than in Spain, the matter would have been referred to an ecclesiastical court with the consequent decision in favor of the faith, but here went to the civil court with the result that, after elaborate argument on both sides, in 1462, the great jurist Alfonso Diaz de Montalvan rendered a decision recognizing that the Moors could not eat meat slaughtered in the Christian fashion, that they were entitled to a slaughterhouse of their own, free of tax but that they must not sell meat to Christians, and must pay the tax on all that they might thus have sold. Trivial as is this case, it gives us a clear insight into the independence and self-assertion of the Moorish communities, and the readiness of the courts to protect them in their rights. 
the Mudejares were guaranteed the enjoyment of their own religion and laws. They had their mosques and schools, and, in the earlier times, magistrates of their own race, who decided all questions between themselves according to their own zuna, or law. But suits between Christian and Moor were sometimes heard by a Christian judge, and sometimes by a mixed bench of both faiths. In the capitulations, it was generally provided that they should be subject only to the taxes exacted by their previous sovereigns, though in time this was apt to be disregarded. A privilege granted, in 1254, by Alfonso X to the inhabitants of Seville, authorizing them to purchase land of the Moors throughout their district, shows that the paternal possessions of the latter had been undisturbed. They were free to buy and sell real estate, and although, when the reactionary period commenced, towards the close of the 13th century, Sancho IV granted the petition of Cortes of Valladolid in 1293, forbidding Jews and Moors to purchase the land of the Christians, the restriction soon became obsolete. Not only was there no prohibition of their bearing arms, but they were liable to military service. Exemption from this was a special privilege accorded, in 1115, at the capitulation of Tudela. In 1263, Jaime I of Aragon released the Moors of Masones from tribute and military service in consideration of an annual payment of 1,500 sueldos yaquenses. In 1283, his son Pedro III, when preparing to assist the invasion of Philippe Laharde, summoned his faithful Moors of Valencia to join his armies, and in the levies made in Mercia in 1385 for the war with Portugal, each Alhama had its assigned quota. A wise policy would have dictated the mingling of the races as much as possible, so as to encourage unification and facilitate the efforts at conversion, which were never lost to sight. The converso, or baptized Moor, or Jew, was the special favorite of the legislator. The Moorish law, which disinherited an apostate, was set aside, and he was assured of his share in his paternal estate. The popular tendency to stigmatize him as a toranidizo, or renegat, was severely repressed. The church insisted that a Moorish captive who sincerely sought baptism should be set free, Dominicans and Franciscans were empowered to enter all places where Jews and Moors dwelt, to assemble them to listen to sermons, while royal officials were directed to compel the attendance of those who would not come voluntarily. It is easy now to see that this policy, which resulted in winning over multitudes to the faith, would have been vastly more fruitful if the races had been compelled to associate together, and infinite subsequent misery and misfortune would have been averted but this was a stretch of tolerant humanity, virtually impossible at the time. The church, as will be seen, exerted every effort to keep them apart, on the humiliating pretext that she would lose more souls than she would gain, and there was, moreover, sufficient mutual distrust to render separation desired on both sides. At a very early period of the reconquest, the policy was adopted of assigning a special quarter of a captured town to the Moors and thus the habit was established of providing a moriera in the larger cities, to which the mudejares were confined. The process is well illustrated by what occurred at Murcia, when, in 1266, it was definitely reconquered for Alfonso X by Jaime I of Aragon. He gave half the houses to Aragonese and Catalans and restricted the Moors to the quarter of the Arejaca, Alfonso confirmed the arrangement, 
dislodging the Christians from among the Moors and building a wall between them. His decree on the subject recites that this was done at the prayer of the Moors, who were despoiled and ill-treated by the Christians, and who desired the protection of a wall, to the construction of which he devoted one half of the revenues levied for the repair of the city walls. It was the same with the Jews, who were not to dwell among the Christians, but to have their own Hudiera set apart for them near the Orihuela Gate. Besides this segregation from the Christians in the cities, there were smaller towns in which the population was purely Moorish, where Christians were not allowed to dwell. That this was regarded as a privilege we can readily imagine, and it is shown by the confirmation, in 1255, by Alfonso X, of an agreement with the Mudejares of Moran, under which they are to sell their properties to Christians and remove to Silebar, where they are to build a castle and houses, and to be free of all taxes for three years. Their law is to be administered by their own Alcadi, and no Christian is to reside there except the Amore Harif, or tax-gatherer, and his men. All this was tended to perpetuate the separation between the Christian and the Moor, and a further potent cause is to be found in the horror which miscenegation was regarded, at least when the male offender was a Moor. Intermarriage, of course, was impossible between those of different faiths, and illicit connections were punished in the most savage manner. In spite of this natural but impolitic segregation, the Mudejares gradually became denationalized and assimilated themselves in many ways to the population by which they were surrounded. In time they forgot their native language, and it became necessary for their learned men to compile law-books in Castilian for the guidance of their Akkadis. Quite a literature of this kind arose, and, even after the final expulsion, as late as the middle of the seventeenth century, among the refugees in Tunis, a manual of religious observances was composed in Spanish, the author of which lamented that even the sacred characters in which the Koran was written were almost unknown and that the rites of worship were forgotten or mingled with usages and customs borrowed from the Christians. The Mudejares even sympathized with the patriotic aspirations of their Castilian neighbors as against their independent brethren. When, in 1340, Alfonso XI returned in triumph to Seville, after the overwhelming victory of the Rio Salado, we are told how the Moors and their women united with the Jews in the rejoicings which greeted the conqueror. Even more practical was the response to the appeal of the Infante Fernando in 1410, when he was besieging Antequera, one of the bulwarks of Granada, and was in great straits for money. He wrote muy afectuosamente to Seville and Cordova, not only to the Christians, but to the Moorish and Jewish Alejamas, and, as he was popular with them, they advanced him what sums they could. The process of denationalization and fusion with the Christian community was necessarily slow, but its progress gave gratifying promise to a result, requiring only wise patience and sympathy, which could have averted incalculable misfortunes. In a financial and industrial point of view, the Mudejares formed a most valuable portion of the population. The revenues derived from them were among the most reliable resources of the state, Assignments on them were frequently used as the safest and most convenient form of securing apanages and dowries and incomes for prelates and religious establishments. To the nobles on whose lands they were settled, they were almost indispensable, for their skillful agriculturalists and the results of their indefatigable labors 
brought returns which could be realized in no other way. That they should be relentlessly exploited was a matter of course. A fuero granted, in 1371, by the Amarante Ambrosio de Bocanegra to his Mudejeres of Palma del Rio, not only specifies their duties and taxes, but prescribes that they should bake in the segnunial oven and bathe in the segornial baths, and purchase their necessaries in the segornial shops. They are not only admirable husbandmen and artificers, but distinguish themselves in the highest regions of science and art. As physicians they ranked with the Jews, and when, in 1345, Ferrant Rodriguez, prior of the Order of Santiago, built the Church of Our Lady of Ocles, he assembled Moorish masters and good Christian stonemasons who constructed it of stone and mortar. The industry of Spain was to a great extent in their hands. To them the land owed the introduction of the sugar cane, cotton, silk, the fig, the orange, and the almond. Their system of irrigation, still maintained at the present time, was elaborately perfect, and they had built highways and canals to facilitate intercourse and transportation. Valencia, which was densely populated by Mudejares, was regarded as one of the richest provinces in Europe, producing largely of sugar, oil, and wine. In the manufacture of Europe, their leather work was unsurpassed, their manufacturers of metal was eagerly sought out in distant lands, while their architecture manifests their delicate skill and artistic taste. Marriages were arranged for girls at eleven and boys at twelve. Dowries were of little account, for a bed and a few coins were deemed sufficient, where all were industrious and self-supporting, and their rapid increase, like evil weeds, was a subject of complaint to their Christian detractors. Ingenious and laborious, sober and thrifty, a dense population found livelihood in innumerable trades, in which men, women, and children all labored, producing wealth for themselves and prosperity for the land. In commerce they were equally successful. They were slaves to their word. Their reputation for probity and honor was universal, and their standing as merchants was proverbial. There was no beggary among them, and quarrels were rare, differences being, for the most part, amicably settled without recourse to their judges. It is not easy to set limits to the prosperity attainable by the peninsula with its natural resources developed by a population combining the vigor of the Castilian with the industrial capacity of the Moor. All that was needed was Christian patience and good will to kindle and encourage kindly feeling between the conquering and the subject race. Time would have done the rest. The infidel, won over to Christianity, would have become fused with the faithful, and a united people, blessed with the characteristics of both races, would have been ready to take the foremost place in the wonderful era of industrial civilization which was about to open. Unhappily for Spain, this was not to be. To the conscientious churchmen of the Middle Ages, any compact with the infidel was a league with Satan. He could not be forcibly brought into the fold, but it was the plainest of duties to render his position outside so insupportable that he would take refuge in conversion. End of Book One Chapter 2, Part 3